Has the virtue of friendship been lost today? If so, why? And how do we recover a biblical vision of friendship rooted in the example of Jesus? Our guest today is back. Her name is Rebecca McLaughlin. She holds a PhD in Renaissance literature from Cambridge University and is the author of an excellent new book called No Greater Love. I'm Sean McDowell. I'm Scott Ray. And this is Think Biblically from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Rebecca, when I saw the title of this book, I was instantly intrigued because all the other books I read of you are apologetics books, which I love, of course. So maybe tell us the backstory of what motivated you to write a book on friendship. Mm. Gosh, so many things I could say. Part of it comes from the fact that for the last several years, I have been thinking and writing quite a bit about um, questions of sexuality from a Christian perspective. And, and one of the things that I've been trying to argue is that the Bible is actually very clear in its no to same-sex sexual relationships for Christians yeah. under any circumstances. So there are some folks today who would want to say, well, you know, if we really understood the cultural context or if we really understood the scriptures, we'd recognize that um, what the Bible excludes is, is um, you know, various kinds of relationships, but not, it, it leaves room for kind of monogamous, committed, you know, say a, a, a marriage between two people of the same sex. And I, in the last few years, I've, I've been in multiple different books and, and talks arguing that, no, actually, the Bible is is very clear that same-sex marriage is, is out for Christians. But I've, I've been increasingly persuaded that actually that no is in the context of two much bigger yeses yeah. in the scriptures, one of which is the, is the yes that finds its um, it's outworking in Christian marriage, which is a, a picture of Jesus's love for his people and a very sort of specific picture of that. But the other, the other yes that I think we, we notice even less is that rather than the Bible having no vision for love between people of the same sex, it actually has an, a, a beautiful, glorious uh, and life-giving vision, but it's a different vision than the vision it has for, for marriage between a man and a woman. And I think part of why we're often, those of us who are, who are wanting to be faithful to the scriptures, why we're often kind of struggling to articulate why what the Bible says when it comes to sex and marriages is good and true and beautiful today is because we've actually lost the, the vision for um, non-sexual, non-romantic love that the Bible is very clear about. And, and the more I've delved into the New Testament, the more I've become persuaded that, yeah, we're missing, we're missing an awful lot here when we reduce intimacy down to the kind of intimacy you might find in marriage and even the kind of intimacy you might find in parent-child relationships, we're missing an awful lot of what the New Testament is telling us. Rebecca, as you know, I've really weighed into the question of marriage and sexuality as well. And I remember speaking at a conference in the Midwest and a man came up to me afterwards. He said, you know, I have same-sex attraction. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. He said, my issue is not what Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6 says. My issue is the church has just said, well, if you don't get married, be, you know, you're single, good luck with that. And we don't have yeah. a robust just experience and theology of friendship. So I just want to affirm and love that you're weighing into this. And Rebecca, just a, a little further follow-up. It, it seems to me that we value marriage in the church much more than we value the kinds of the friendships that go along with singleness. Uh, that there's there's something that marriage is considered mm. a better state to be in, yeah. uh, and that singleness is sort of something you graduate from, um, right? And so, yeah. you know, how how would you help the church understand that 
that marriage and singleness are viewed as moral equivalents. Yeah, I, I think that the best thing that we can do is just to go back to, to what the New Testament teaches very clearly. So the, the title of, of my book is based on what Jesus said the night that he was betrayed, where he said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this and that he laid down his life for his friends. And, and if you think about it, um, not only in that verse, but actually in a number of Paul's uh, letters um, as well, we find that love between believers who are not married to one another and not in parent-child relationships is actually commanded. Like we, we tend to think of, of friendship as a, as a nice to have. And maybe something that like single people really need friendship. But once you get married, you know, your, your primary commitment is to your husband and wife and your children. And, you know, friends are sure friends are nice, but but actually very much an optional extra from a, from a, a disciple's perspective. I don't think when we read the scriptures, we can conclude that because if Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another. And he's talking to a group of people. I mean, I actually think it's probably more than. The 11 at that point, um, I say the 11 because Judas has just walked out into the night to betray Jesus. So so he ain't there. Um, I, I think it's likely that there were other disciples there, including some of his, his closest female disciples. But leaving that aside, the people in that room were relating to each other, not as spouses, not as parents and children, but actually as friends. Mm. And, and he says that, that his commandment to them is for their love for each other to mimic his sacrificing love and that actually the the best that we can find in self-sacrificing friendship love is as good as any love we might find in any other place Mm. um i think if we're honest in most of our christian circles we would have ended jesus's sentence differently you know we would have said greater love has no one than this than a love of a husband and a wife or maybe greater love has no one than this than the love of a mother for her children you know we have we have categories for those kinds of love but we actually don't have much of a category for serious, robust, Jesus-centered love between between believers. I, I don't think only of the same sex. I don't think there's a sort of limitation there per se. But I do think probably especially for believers of the same sex um, to be relating to one another as brothers or as sisters. And, and that is a, a commandment that we are given time and time again, actually, in the New Testament. Um, I mean, if you if you read John's first letter... Uh, I was reflecting on that this just recently because I was raised in the Anglican church and, and in, in the Anglican wedding service, it almost always the service begins um, with a quote from first John, um, you know, God is love. Anyone who lives in love lives in God and God lives in him. Mm. And we hear that and we think, Oh, you know, lovely wedding service verse. These people are about to share their love for one another. You know, wonderful. But actually John isn't talking about marriage at all. <laughs> He's talking again and again in that letter about love between the brothers um, and by extension sisters. You know, the word for, for brothers in the New Testament is definitely an inclusive word that can you know, mean brothers and sisters as well. But he'll say things like, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so we are also to lay down our lives for the brothers. And it, again and again, we have this re-articulated to us that love between brothers and, and sisters in the church is not an optional and extra. It's actually central to what Christian discipleship looks like. So, Rebecca, it sounds like that that view of friendship reflects some of the different Greek words that are used to describe friendship. Uh, so, what, how there and, there and there are a handful of these. There's not one term that's used mm-hmm. to describe friendship, but there are different terms for different types of friendships. What are the different Greek words used to describe friendship and 
sort of how would that help us define what we mean by friendship? Yeah, the, the most famous uh, sort of commonly used um, word in the New Testament that's specific to friendship is philos. And that's the, the word that Jesus is using when he says, greater love is none unless that he lay down his life for his friends. Interestingly, when, when Judas betrays Jesus, um, famously, you know, betrays Jesus with a kiss, uh, and Jesus uh, addresses Judas as friend, typically in, in English translations, that's, that's the English word that we use. So in our minds, that's probably exactly the same as the, the word that he's using when he calls his disciples to, to love one another. In actual fact, it's, it's a, um, the word hetairos, which means more kind of a companion, like ne- not necessarily um, as sort of specific as, as friendship, but a kind of associate or companion. Um, so we have those two words. I think beyond that, actually, though, we have this language of brothers and sisters. And it's perhaps a stretch to say that that, um, that can be kind of fully collapsed into our modern concepts of friendship, because I, I think it's important to recognise that what we're called into as Christians isn't just a sort of voluntary association with others. You know, we tend to feel like we can choose our friends, whereas we don't feel like we can choose our family members. You know, you're born with the brothers or sisters that you have and you're kind of stuck with them for better or for worse. And there's a strong sense in which the New Testament is saying to us, hey, actually, your brothers and sisters in Christ are not your chosen family. They're actually your unchosen family, uh, but you need to love them. I, I think that the overall kind of category at least in our in our world that we would have for that is is the category of friendship. So, you know, as we relate to brothers and sisters at church who are, who we're not biologically related to or are not married to, um, we're primarily thinking in, in sort of categorical terms, at least in our culture of of friendship. And I think that's a really important one. That's really helpful about the the chosen and unchosen friendships. I've often commented to my wife that I'd be happy to be in a small group if I could choose the people who are in it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. So I'm curious about why you started with Jesus and what we learned from Jesus. Because it struck me at the beginning of the book, you described C.S. Lewis as, of course, his book on the four loves, but he was rooted less so in scripture and more so kind of in the classics. So why start mm-hmm. with Jesus? And if we start there, what do we uniquely learn about friendship? Yeah, in my experience, when you say friendship to Christians, they have one of two reactions. Either they say, oh, C.S. Lewis read a great book about that, or like partly about that. Um, or they say, oh, yeah, David and Jonathan. Yep. Now, that's kind of our, our we have one Old Testament model for a, a close and loving relationship between two men. Uh, and people sometimes sort of want to point to Ruth and Naomi as, you know, people sort of reach back into the Old Testament to, to grasp onto to some folks there. Um I think that's entirely illegitimate, but I do actually think it, it, we we would struggle to map, for example, David and Jonathan onto a friendship today. Not least, I mean, there's a significant political dimension to their relationship. There's a substantial age difference between them. Like, it's really not it's not quite as straightforward as we often think. And, and because the, the the word friend is used quite seldom in the New Testament, we tend to think, oh, well, the New Testament probably doesn't have a whole lot to to say about this. In actual fact, it has an awful lot to say about it. So I started with that, that verse um, of, of Jesus on, on the night that he was betrayed because it sets a, you know, it, it plants a very strong, strong flag. If this is Jesus's commandment to us, we need to take it very seriously. If we look just at, at Jesus's own life and ministry as recorded in the Gospels, we'll find that in addition or, or kind of alongside his love for for all who, you know, strangers as and, and enemies as well as those he kind of travelled around with, 
um, we see specific instances of Jesus's love relationships with individuals. So famously, the author of John's Gospel describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. And some kind of contemporary scholars look at that and they say, oh, well, clearly Jesus must have had some sort of like romantic relationship with the author of John because, I mean, honestly, because we don't really have a category for <laughs> for love between two men that isn't romantic or sexual. Sure. And, and they say, well, you know, you see on, on the night um, that Jesus is betrayed to his death, we see John kind of kind of cuddled under Jesus's arm. I mean, the, the archaic way of saying it is lying in Jesus's bosom is the sort of language and we see Peter kind of signaling to them, to him to ask Jesus a question because he's, he's next to him. And because in our culture, male-male kind of physical touch is very, um, you know, we, we struggle to uh, have a category for that, again, aside from a romantic relationship. People sort of pick up on that and they say, well, there must have been some sort of very unique relationship between Jesus and the author of John's Gospel. But actually that hypothesis crumbles even if you only read John's Gospel, <laughs> Because when in, in John 11, Jesus's friends, Mary and Martha, um, sent him a message because their brother Lazarus is very sick. They say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Not Lazarus, not our brother, Lord, the one you love. A- and then John in verse five of that chapter specifically kind of underlines that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So even from John's own pen, we see that he's not claiming he is the only disciple Jesus loved. Mm. <laughs> he's saying it is it's foundational to his identity that he is loved by Jesus, but he's not making a kind of exclusive claim here. Lazarus as well and Mary and Martha, you know, were also disciples Jesus loves. And then as, as we see the, the rest of the New Testament play out, I, I find um, Paul's example fascinating. We already talked about John's um, letter kind of emphasizing brotherly love. But in Paul, we see, again, um, not only the kind of general commands to Christians to love one another, which happen again and again, but we also see specific instances of Paul having close, loving relationships with, with various of his friends. So w- one example would be in um, Paul's letter to Philemon, where he's talking about Anisimus, um, and he says of Anisimus that Anisimus is his very heart, or what you know, technically in Greek is sort of more his, his bowels, is sort of the way of communicating the, the deep seat of emotion. Yeah. And one of the things I often wonder is, you know, if you said to a, a pastor like, um, or if your pastor stood up on Sunday and described a, another man in the congregation as his very heart, you know, people would be like, oh, you know, that's kind of an extreme way to talk about something. Like, you know, let's settle down here. You know, that's, that's a bit much. <laughs> um, in, in our Christian culture, that seems overly intense. And yet that is how Paul is happy to describe Anisimus. Um, he, in the greetings at the end of Romans, there are multiple men who he describes as my beloved, um, we see him talking about Epaphroditus and saying if Epaphroditus, had, if Epaphroditus had died, Paul would have felt sorrow upon sorrow. You know, he would have been heartbroken to have lost this gospel partner. Um, not because he wouldn't be sure that Epaphroditus would have gone to be with Jesus. He absolutely would. But because he would have missed him so much. You know, we see time and again in Paul's letters, these little glimpses of the deep love relationships that he has with a number of friends. And I think that's really important as well. Um you know, people sometimes would want to say, well, okay, we, we know that same-sex sexual relationships are kind of out of bounds for Christians, but we can um, mimic marriage in, a, in, a, in the friendship context of, of you know, especially those of us who might be attracted to our same sex to sort of pick one friend and kind of have a covenant bond with them that's not expressed sexually, but is like a, you know, a, a lifelong kind of covenant partnership. 
I actually don't think that's what the, the New Testament is is calling us to at all. I think we see a, a, a picture of um, a variety of friends who we are called to love and invest in, that it's not unlike marriage, where, which by design is exclusive. Friendship by design is actually inclusive. It's, it's doing a different kind of thing and we need to kind of give it its own space and not make it a, a, a mimic of marriage. Yeah, Rebecca, I don't think it's an accident that the, the New Testament describes our relationships in the church as siblings, as, right. as brothers and sisters. As you pointed out from our, our citing our colleague Joe Hellerman uh, in his book, The Church as a Family, mm-hmm. uh, it, it describes that a sibling relationship in the, in the Greco-Roman culture was actually considered stronger than the husband-wife relationship. And so mm-hmm. it's, I mean, yeah, it's true that our relationship to Christ is compared to marriage in, in some respects, but it's also true that our relationship with each other are compared to those sibling relationships that are considered to be the, clo- the closest blood relations that you can have with someone. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So we, you wrote a really interesting piece, uh, and, I, and it, it strikes me that, that you, this is one of the ways that you, you put shoe leather on this idea of friendship, it's, and you entitled it, Why I Don't Sit With My Husband at Church. Mm. Right? What do you mean by that? Uh, and who do you sit with? Do you know, it's a funny story that goes with, with that article because um, I, when I first sat down to write it, I thought this is going to be the least controversial thing I've ever written. <laughs> you know, I write, I, write about all, I write about abortion. I write about same-sex marriage. I write about race. I like I, all the things, Yeah. And I thought I'm going to write. I'm going to write this piece, explaining why Brian and I um, choose to not sit next to each other at church. And and you know, I'm, this is going to not generate too much <laughs> drama. And it turned out to be extremely controversial. Uh, I ended up. Uh, I wrote it for Christianity Today, and I ended up doing. A, they invited me to do a podcast interview with them because there had been so much kind of drama around around this article, which which intrigued me. Um, the, the thinking is this: so on a Sunday. Um, of course, what church is, is not limited to what happens on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, if you're an evening kind of congregation person. But I would want to say that what, what happens on a Sunday must, um, is certainly a substantial piece of what church means. You know, what we do on Sunday needs to indicate what we believe about, about the church body. And if it is true that my local church is actually my primary family unit, and I think that's what Jesus is, is telling us, um, you know, famously, when Jesus is preaching one day and, and his mother and his brothers come to see him, he gets the message. And, and you, we might expect, actually, in our Christian culture, we might expect Jesus to leave at once and say, you know, family first, I'm out of here. Sorry, guys. But instead, he, he shockingly says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And looking around at his disciples, he says, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Um, so, so Jesus has sort of shocking disruption of the idea of, of the kind of family first mentality, not because... Christian family doesn't matter, but because it belongs in the in the broader family of, of the local church. And so what, what Brian and I do on a Sunday is we, rather than sitting with each other, um, which is, you know, perfectly lovely, we choose instead to sit with um, people who might be new to the church or people who um, are sitting by themselves, you know, perhaps um, single friends, because we, we want it to be visible that we mean it when we say our local church is our family, not that we come with our family to church, but that we actually come to church to be with our family, if that if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we've both discovered and experienced over the years, um, well, well, two two primary things. One is that 
an awful lot of people walk into church randomly every Sunday morning for whatever reason. You know, what one um, one week for us, it was a, a woman who had been raised Catholic, hadn't been to church in a decade, had recently, her fiancé had broken up with her, and she was thinking, I, I need to, I just need to rethink my entire life. She was disillusioned with Catholicism, and so she's shown up at our little Southern Baptist church in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I went and sat with her and, and, and chatted with her, um, but, but many people walk into our churches on a Sunday morning, sit by themselves, nobody talks to them when they leave and they never come back again. Mm. We, are, we are wasting gospel opportunities week in, week out because we're not being super proactive about um, pursuing those who, who, who might be new um, to our congregations. And the other thing is that I, uh, I hear frequently and I heard um, you know, after that article and every time I've written or spoken about this, I hear from single Christians who say to me, when I go to church on Sunday morning, I feel lonely. Wow. And it, it just, it breaks my heart because if we are, as Jesus's followers, one body together, I mean, that's how Paul describes this. If we are brothers and sisters, if we are to love one another as Jesus has loved us, the fact that our single siblings show up to church on a Sunday and feel lonely is a, a damning indictment on our churches, actually. Like it's, it could not be more wrong. And Brian and I just tr- try to do our little piece in, in making that not true by sitting with, with friends who are single um, and making, like, making it clear to them that we see them as, as part of the family, not as, you know, they'll, they'll often walk in on a Sunday morning, look around at various family pods sitting together or couples sitting together and think, oh, you know, I guess I'll sit here by myself. Um, I think we need a radical rethinking of what church looks like on a Sunday. And I don't think that undermines the family. I actually, I, I think it, it, it puts the family, the Christian nuclear family in its right context, because then, you know, my children are growing up in church where, where they get to experience the love and input of a, a whole range of adult friends. Um, and they get to show love to a whole range of people you know, adult and, and child, they, they get to to be part of the family in, in a meaningful way, kind of week on week. Rebecca, you really deal with some of the important questions of what is our relationship to our family and the church family? And I think folks are going to jump into that and be challenged in a fresh way, but also look at how Jesus kind of redrew relational lines, horizon- not horizontally, but really vertically. Mm. One of the issues you weigh into that really intrigued me is physical affection, what is appropriate and not appropriate between friends of the same sex? And I asked mm-hmm. because I saw a tweet from a Christian leader, and he's wrote out a while ago, he said, it's never okay for Christian men to cuddle. And that, of course, stirred the hornet's nest. But then we look mm-hmm. at David and Jonathan, as you mentioned, and there's this deep intimacy and brotherly even hugging and embracing and kissing how do we draw that line of what physical affection is appropriate and not appropriate and good between mm. friends of the same mm. sex? Yeah, I mean, even setting aside David and Jonathan, again, no offense to them, but I, I'm sort of, of less anchor on them. <laughs> Let's just look at the New Testament. So as I mentioned, Jesus on at the Last Supper has John like cuddled under his arm. Mm. So to say that it is never appropriate for Christian men to like be physically connected like that is 
I, I would really struggle to reconcile that with the scriptures. We, we have the Apostle Paul multiple times commands us to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I come from England where actually kissing, um, it, it's, it's very common for women to greet each other with a kiss, for women and men to greet each other with a kiss. It's not common for men and men to greet each other with a kiss. That's mm. just sort of the cultural way things play out where, where we are. My, my sense in the US, having lived here 16 years, is it's more common for, for men here to hug each other, whereas in the U- UK, it's kind of fairly uncommon for men, men to hug each other. All of these things, again, need to be sort of nuanced according to culture and according to people's comfort levels and, and whatever. Um, but but again, to say that it's never appropriate for, for Christian men to cuddle one another is like, I actually think that is demonstrably false from the scriptures. Now, you could absolutely say that there could be certain contexts in which it would be unwise for, say, a, a Christian man who maybe experiences same-sex attraction and is struggling with his feelings to be cuddling with another man, like for sure. Um, and as a woman myself who um, I've experienced same-sex attraction for as long as I can remember, um, and there will have been you know, certain contexts in my life where actually um, leaning into physical contact with a particular friend at a particular time might have just not been the right thing for me to do at all. And all of us will need to kind of exercise wisdom and discernment about that. But at the same time, I actually think an awful lot of sexual sin of all kinds happens today in part because people are starved of the right healthy kind of physical affection. Um, I think that's that's true of a lot of young women. I think it's true of a lot of young men. Well, not just young. I think it's true. <laughs> I think it's true. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that's the only thing that's going on, nor that um, you know embracing one another more is going to be the kind of remedy for all else, for sure. But I do think it is appropriate that our, our, our church families are ones where physical affection is, is normal. Um, I think of Brian and I met in, in the UK, and he'd moved from Oklahoma to England, and one of the many culture shocks that he experienced was like, the lack of hugging between men in England. So he was sort of somewhat kind of starved of physical affection while he was there. Interesting. And the first time I went home with him to visit Oklahoma, we went to visit a, a black church um, in, in Oklahoma City. And Brian commented that he got more hugs in the space of one hour at that black church than he had had in the entire previous year in England. Wow. Which again, you know, goes to show that some of our churches struggle more with um, with normalizing physical affection between Christians than others. Um, you know, we perhaps, those of us in white majority churches might have a thing or two to learn from our black brothers and sisters um, in, in black majority churches on this. But yeah, I think it, I think um, appropriate physical affection between brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the good things that, that the Lord has for us, actually. So, Rebecca, what, what about opposite sex friendships? Uh, and specifically, you mentioned the, the Billy Graham rule. So explain what that is, uh, and do you think that's appro- an appropriate guideline? Yeah, so I, again, just sort of starting with, with the Scriptures, we see in the New Testament um, a model of, of real gospel partnership and, and loving relationship between uh, men and women. So we see that again in Jesus's life and ministry and with Mary and Martha of Bethany being a couple of the examples, um, Mary Magdalene being another, you know, Jesus clearly had um, close friendships, cl- close relationships with a number of women, female disciples. Um, we see it also actually in, in Paul. Um, if you look through the, the greetings at the end of Romans, you'll see a number of women Paul is, is highly commending. If you look in, in Philippians, 
um, uh, where he talks about um, Syntyche and Eurydice. Um, what's her name? Eurydice. I'm, I'm botching her name. But he, he calls on two particular women within the church to agree with one another. They're clearly at odds for some reason that we don't you know, fully understand. But he describes them as having kind of laboured vigorously alongside him in the gospel. And, and the word that he uses is one of uh, kind of close, uh, sort of contending together. Like it's it's quite a it's quite an intimate word actually. Um, and when he he writes to Timothy, he tells Timothy he doesn't say you know avoid women in your church like the plague. He says treat younger women as sisters and older women as mothers. And if you think about you know I don't know if either of you guys have have sisters. Um, but if you think about how a brother and a sister might might relate, that that's a that's a close, intimate relationship. That's a relationship of love. Um, if you think about how a mother and a and a son relate, that's a relationship of love. But it's it's one that is not a sexual relationship. Mm. Um, and Paul adds that he should treat you know younger women as sisters with all purity. So there's a, a strong concern that we see throughout the, the New Testament that we should flee from sexual immorality. And there is a strong invitation to to brotherly and sisterly love. And my sense is that for each of us, we are going to need to attend to both of those commands and that it might actually end up looking a little bit different for each of us, depending on our our own particular circumstances and and relationships and and the things that we may or may not struggle with. Um, So you mentioned the Billy Billy Graham rule, and I, I bring this up in the book because one of the things that Billy Graham was famous for was um, he and a couple of other um, kind of gospel brothers had seen a number of, of other evangelists and pastors completely destroy their ministry through various kinds of sin, including sexual sin. And they were wisely really wanting to not have that be their story and actually kind of humbly saying there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? Um, you know, we, we only need boundaries and, and these kinds of rules because we're, we know that we're sinners. So one of the things that, that he and these these other guys came up with that's kind of been codified since um, for a number of, of Christians today as sort of the Billy Graham rule is to, to never be alone with a woman other than your wife. And my sense is that there'll be some men for whom that is actually a really wise rule um, and perhaps some women as well for, for whom that's that's a really wise rule. Um, you know, perhaps they they significantly struggle with with sexual temptation and it just would help them a lot in terms of their their purity in their mind and in, in how they're relating to others to to just never be in a, a one-on-one situation with a, a woman other than than their wife so I, I i don't for a minute want to denigrate or discourage somebody who thinks do you know what i think that's actually the most helpful approach for me but, on the other end of the spectrum uh sorry to, no, <laughs> to no, kind keep of keep going, going with keep this going. but um i as i mentioned i'm someone who's um my my temptations, such as they are, would be actually toward other women. So I um, I don't feel any kind of anxiety myself about spending time, you know, individually with with Christian men. I sometimes have to think, like, you know, just because it might not be a, a challenge for me, that I need to be attentive to whether it's a challenge for them. Um, but you know, I dedicated this book to my friend Sam Albury, who also, um, like me, is someone who's uh, typically tempted toward members of the same sex. So he and I can relate very easily and very like, it's just very uncomplicated, you know, his, his and my friendship. And we don't really have to kind of worry a whole lot about the possibility of either of us kind of being sexually tempted toward the other. So that, that would be kind of one extreme end of the, the spectrum. Um, 
but I have other, I mean, I have other male friends who are never attracted to people of their same sex, but, but also just don't find um, that they're in a kind of continual battle um, when it comes to temptation toward other women. And so they're actually in a, in a place where they can be, um, you know, pursuing friendship with, with women in a way that doesn't complicate their marriage or their, their, um, you know, their, their sexual, um, doesn't draw them into sexual sin in any way. So I think as with, with any relationship, we need to be, we need to know ourselves well. We need to be um, prioritizing fleeing from sexual sin. And we need to be thinking, what does it look like to love this other person? Um, and that, that just will play out differently. I don't think we, I don't think there's only a kind of one size fits all. Um, this is the rule for everybody under all circumstances. I think we need to exercise wisdom. I totally agree with that. I, I thought your nuanced and charitable approach to the Billy Graham rule was wise because I have a father who for decades was probably one of the most recognizable Christians mm. in the world and would follow the Billy Graham rule. Mm. And it wasn't so much for temptation to him as it was just the appearance to other people yeah. and the amount of people, especially speaking in the free speech platform when he started out, who just kind of wanted to tear him down and yeah. look for even the slightest you know, hint of indiscretion. And so right. you saying there there could be different factors if you have same-sex attraction. If you don't, you have a public ministry, you don't. I think that's a nuanced, fair, charitable approach because it does raise some concerns. Some people said, does it make certain systems of power an all-boys club? Does it make women out to be just kind of sexual, you know, objects mm -hmm. in some fashion? Yeah. These are totally fair concerns I think we need to think about. But loved your nuanced approach. Really appreciate your book. Scott and I are looking at each other right now thinking we have so many more questions for you. But, of course, that means we'll just have to have you back in due time. But we want to commend your book to our audience. It's called No Greater Love, A Biblical Vision of Friendship. Again, No Greater Love, A Biblical Vision of French for Friendship from our guest today, Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca, thanks for writing a great book, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, brothers. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California, and some are online, including our Masters in Christian Apologetics, now offered fully online. To submit comments, ask questions, or suggest issues or guests you'd like us to include, please email us at thinkbiblically@biola.edu. If you enjoyed today's podcast conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and consider sharing it with a friend. Thank you for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.